I uh, get to do my favorite thing, I think, on uh, this 30th anniversary, and that's preach God's word to you, and it's a great privilege. And if, if you came today also to honor what the Lord does and through his church and his ministers, a special thank you for making the effort to be here. Um, the word of God for our meditation is Hebrews chapter 13. It's the end of a, a letter, and it's this section that has rapid-fire encouragement. And uh, I, I told Pastor Herring when I discovered what my assigned text was, I said, how unfair this is for a long-winded preacher to give him a text with five points in it. But I figured it's my anniversary, I'll preach how long I want to. <laughs> I'll try to not be uh, as long as five points would normally take me. But uh, no guarantees, just teasing. So... The writer to the Hebrews, we don't know who it was, but he spent, they were Hebrew Christians, they were Jews who had become Christians, and they were starting to fall away back to Judaism, and so he spends a long time in his letter proving that Jesus Christ, as the one we know, is really the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, and they better not leave him, because if they leave Jesus, even though he's new to the planet at their time, he's actually the long-time promised Messiah, and they would lose their salvation. When he gets to chapter 13, though, he's saying, if you want to honor that Jesus that was put on the cross for you, if you want to honor the God who gave you life and gave you his son and put every single one of your sins on his shoulders, then these are the core values that you should live by. Core values is a modern term, but that's really what the, the section is. They're, the, each one of these six or five, I mean, I'm already adding one, these five things are imperatives for a, a Christian's life. And they are in response out of love for God who gave you life and gave you salvation, a new lease on life through the forgiveness of your sins. And for you that are longtime part, members of our fellowship, I'll just, t I'll just remind you, this is law mostly, not gospel. What I mean is these passages are the standard by which God asks you to live your life, the core values he wants you to have in honor of him. And as we go through them, I want you to remember very important things like the law is good and will help you be happy and navigate life and it'll give you a bright light on certain things in your life that you have questions about because your heart is sinful and you need guidance. Remember there's three uses of the law? Can you say them with me? The, the one when you're driving your car and you bump into it, a curb to curb bad behavior Okay, when you get, wake up in the morning and you need to make sure you can look presentable to go to church, you look in a mirror, the law reveals to you what's right and wrong about you or people or yourself. And then finally, it's like a ruler when you want to draw a straight line, it's a guide. The, the, the challenge is, is whenever you preach the law as a guide, like I'm going to do today, it's still going to be a mirror, it's still going to be a curb, and when it's a mirror, it's, it's very honest. And it'll sometimes feel hard to hear the law. It's hard to look in the mirror and see what's there. In fact, if you're like me and you've been in it 30 years in ministry, you try to pass by the mirror as fast as possible. <laughs> you don't want to see it there. When I go through these five real quick, and I know you want me to get on with it, it's going to feel like my, what I hear in my favorite church joke. I'm going to tell it to you. I don't normally do this, but it's my anniversary. I can preach how I want to. I'm going to tell you a joke. 
there was a, a guy in church that is as ex expressive in worship as Angela. He was sitting in the back pew. And the preacher was preaching along, and he said, and you got them cigarettes you've been smoking, and you shouldn't be doing it. And he said, you preach it, brother. And he said, yeah, and you've been cussing at work. And they've been telling me, the preacher, that you've been cussing at work. And he goes, you tell them, brother. And he goes, and you got that beer in the fridge. He goes, you gone to meddling now. <laughs> You're going to think if the law is preached well that somebody's gone to meddling a little bit. But it's, it's the word of God and it's the Holy Spirit. And so accept it. Right. Um, here we go. You want to honor God who saved your soul? Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. In other words, love believers like family. He's writing not to a family. He's writing to a church group of people. And he says, love each other like brothers and sisters. Parents and grandparents know this well. We want our children and grandchildren to support one another, to get along and to own each other and to look after each other. And when they get crossways and they cut each other out of their lives and they mistreat each other, it breaks our hearts and it breaks God's even more when he sees believers doing that in his church. He can't stand it when we don't own each other till death do us part as believers. He wants us to be, see each other like we're family, bearing God's family name. Um, a, a cartoon that illustrates this, Dennis the Menace is playing catch with his friend Joey back and forth, and the ball goes into the bushes, and, and uh, Joey has been complaining while they're playing catch about his little brother playing with his toys, breaking his bicycle, it's taking the last bowl of cereal. And Dennis the Menace is going, well, you know, if he's that much trouble, why don't you just get rid of him? And as the ball goes under the bushes, the little brother goes in after to get it. And Joey's standing in front of the bush talking to Dennis. And he goes, I can't get rid of him. And Dennis says, why? He goes, he's my brother. I can complain about him all day long, but I can't get rid of him. I own him. He's my brother. God wants every believer to feel about their Christian friends that there's a place where they belong and they're owned as family. And don't think about somebody else and whether they've owned you. Think about you honoring Jesus who saved you, owning the rest of us the way Jesus owned his disciples, always going back to them, always gathering and pulling them and forgiving them. And it takes grace to forgive and give to own people as family, even though they're sinners around you. Let's move to the next one. You want to honor Jesus who died on the cross for you? Be nice to strangers. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. When I was a little boy and I first read this passage and I asked somebody in Sunday school that was teaching us, they said, what God is telling you is sometimes when you help strangers, they are angels. As I've grown up and studied it, he's actually referring to probably Abraham who entertained. He had angels. And remember when the three angels showed up, they looked like people. He killed the fatted calf. Angels actually don't need to eat. And uh, he killed the fatted calf for them. And one of them was the angel of the Lord. He didn't realize he was actually entertaining angels. But the point that the writer's making is you do not assume that because someone's a stranger they're not worthy of your love, and you can kind of get by with, well, the way sinners think, get by with treating them with less grace than if you knew you had to pay for it. 
I have, because I'm rambunctious in the way I live, many examples from my life of how I got embarrassed myself thinking I was actually dealing with a stranger when it came back to haunt me that actually I had behaved poorly with someone who knew me or knew somebody that knew me. I'll give one example this time. I was driving to an installation of a pastor in East Texas on a two-lane rural road, and I was in my older pickup truck, and I was trying to get there, and I was running late. Imagine that. And they, you robe up before the service, right? Put the robe on and get out and go sit in the front pew because you're going to lay hands at the end of the service. So I'm, I'm going down this country road, and there's this obviously a little bit older couple compared to me in my 40s at the time, and they're driving slow, and I'm thinking, you know, you're not even going the speed limit. I know some of you have thought this when you're driving too. You're not, you know, this is, I'm going to be late, and it's not going to be my fault because I think I figured it out. I can make it if you weren't driving in front of me. And so I was like, eh, I'm getting more and more, you know, so then I'm a little risk, bit of a risk taker. I know that's a surprise. And uh, we, we came up over a hill, and there's looked enough space before the next hill. I can get by them, and I went around them and just sailed on. And I thought, you know what? I'll never see them again. They were going to the installation. It was Pastor Merle Wagenknecht and his wife. One of the most gracious men you'll ever meet. That was good. You know, I pulled in, and I'm jumping out, grab my robe, and I look, and their car pulls into the drive. It's like, oh, this is not going to be good, good. Hi, Don. Was that you that zoomed past us? I looked at my pickup. There's no way I could hide it. Yep, that was me. I'm sorry. I got impatient. That's okay. We forgive you. It was great. I thought they were strangers. I thought I didn't have to be hospitable. I thought I could risk their lives and mine by re- rushing past them, right? Because I thought they were strangers. I'm sorry, but I have so many of those stories. But you get the picture, right? Um, being hospitable, is, and he says, inter- he says to be hospitable to strangers is to, to make room in your life as best you can. I, the, when I was a younger man, my dad used to get weirded out because I would bring strangers into our home because I believe this passage and ask mom and dad to feed them. And they were worried, you know, and, and uh, that they might be people that were going to steal from us or kill us. But they did a lot of it. Last night, a guy comes up to me at the gas station in, in Giddings area, Brenham Giddings area, and he's been, we saw him pushing a motorcycle in the dark trying to get to the gas station. You know, motorcycle, like a big one, this heavy one, and he's pushing it. And I, so he had gone to the very end of about 14 pumps, and I went into the gas station because I, I needed to get something, and then came, and I was, I was coming out of the gas station, he's walking up to the doorway, and he says, do you have jumper cables, and would you help me? I think I do, and I would help you if I do have them, and I looked under the seat, and there they are, jumper cables, so I gave him a jump, and he took off. Now, why am I telling you that? It's not, I, I want you to go get jumper cables, <laughs> and what I mean is this, have a way, let this be a symbol and a reminder to you, have a way that you will be available and ready to help. You probably, if you have jumper cables for your car, would use it for your car about a tenth of the time you'd use it for others that are in a parking lot or whatever. But in our society, this is a way where you can be hospitable to, to strangers. And it's just an example. What is your jumper cable, though, where you would have, have the ability and the time and, and you would make it to, to help people that are not 
You wouldn't excuse yourself because you don't know them. Be cautious, but also listen to God's Word. He put those people that are strange to you in the same world with you, and they have a need around you. So don't totally give yourself a pass and ignore everybody that has a need around you that you don't know because they could be bad and could be hurtful. That's the Word of God. I'm going to meddling. God, give us God's people that will be more open to trying to help others along a way in life and show them what Jesus is like. And boy, in his society, he was helping everyone, remember? Uh, they didn't know what germs were, but they knew that people that got sick made other people sick. And so they would stay away from people like the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years, and he let her come through the crowd and touch the hem of his robe. And, and, the, and, and he went close to lepers, and he touched people that were sick to, to help take care of them. So be, be careful not to only live cautiously or excuse yourself from helping strangers. Why do I say that? Because the one that died on the cross, when you were a stranger to him, is telling you that in his word. That's in his word. Be hospitable. Next one. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The, this is a letter. It's a long letter. In this letter, he says, some of your Christian friends were thrown into prison under persecution. What he's saying is, if you have someone that you know that's suffering, first, the, a real prison. Secondly, the prison of life, of suffering, like an, a terminal or chronic illness or a, a great economic setback. Um, if you know that, then you suffer in your own heart. Don't avoid feeling the pain of others. But you, you do your best to walk with them through this. It, it, it's a passage that tells us that prison ministry is a wonderful thing. Maybe some of you want to get involved in that. Or like the, the, the worldwide organization, Voice of the Martyrs, where they, they get your support and they keep telling you about the voice of people in other countries who are right now imprisoned or being tortured or being their loved ones killed for the gospel. Voice of the martyrs. Look it up on, on the internet. Jesus says, do not turn your back on people that are suffering because you don't want to deal with the stress of their suffering. Instead, let them know that you're there. And again... Practice caution where you need to practice caution. But on the, in, under the umbrella of being cautious, don't forget people and don't make them feel forgotten, but help them know that you're there to love and support them. This is a core value of the one who wouldn't leave you and your mess on earth by yourself. Instead, he came down to live with us, to die for us, and to rise again. This next one, the first three had to do with Loving people that a certain way. This next one kind of comes out of the blue. Remember, these are core value, core value, core value, core value. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all sexually immoral. Law, right? Mirror, curb, and guide. Did you know that marriage is so big, even though it's not if you put all the passages about marriage in the Bible in one place, they would take up two pages of 
thousands of pages in your Bible. But the pages that they actually take up, because they're not all in one place, are the most prominent places. But be careful when preachers say things like I just said. Six days, right, he made the world. Then he made Adam in his own image. What's the next thing he did? He made Eve and brought her to Adam and married them. And Adam had said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman. She was taken out of man. And then God or Moses, the writer, says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. When people ask Jesus and his mixed up generation about marriage, he went right back to that passage. It's foundational. He said, God made them one. In the prophet Malachi, all the prophets yell at God's people to try to get them back. Do you, if, you, if you were listening to Pastor Herring when he read Amos, you go back and look at that. You talk about meddling. You're doing this and you're doing that. You're gluttons and you're drinking too much. You drink wine by the bowls full and God's coming to judge you. Okay, so Micah, I mean Malachi, he's got like four or five big things that God is upset with his people about. And in chapter 2, this is what he says. And another thing you do, you argue with your wife all the time, and then you divorce her and trade her in on a younger model. And then God says, I hate divorce. And I hate a man dressing himself with violence toward his wife. Wow. Why, why put it in the second chapter of the Bible with its own story? how he made Eve and brought them together. Why have a tantrum about the divorces that were happening in Malachi's day? Because the one who put his son on the cross for you, who married you again after you divorced him in your sin, that, that God says, I made marriage. It is my building block for society. It's how I raise up Malachi too, godly a godly generation after me. I want everybody to honor it. And the devil knows that. He knows if he can make marriage to be something that is relegated to the, a dark room somewhere that happens very seldom, that really isn't about love and romance at all, that isn't the building block of society, isn't the safety of relationships and all those things. He knows if he can get society to just in, infiltrate it now with our phones, with all kinds of adulterous material that even a three-year-old can find access to, he knows he's going to be upsetting the God he hates who created all this. And God says to you and me, I just gave you a whole letter in my Bible about my son on the cross for you, and he's the salvation of your soul. If you want to make me happy, you honor marriage. If you're dating, you honor marriage. If you're going to get married soon, while you're waiting, you honor marriage. If you're married, you honor marriage. If your friends are married, but you're not, you honor marriage. Everyone is to hold marriage as an institution up like this trophy from heaven, and we're supposed to honor it. And anytime any one of us jokes about it, uh, gets involved in things that damage it, that uh, tolerate the world's agenda on not being married... We are not keeping God's core value. You've gone to meddling now. There's not a family or a person in this room that doesn't feel God's finger pointing, saying, honor marriage that I made. 
but his finger is always a gracious finger. He loves us, and that's why he's telling us this. As he says, if you want to join me, love what I love and hold it up high and honor it. I'm pausing because uh, I'm thinking about using an example, but I'm going to spare you the time and move on. Okay, the last of the five. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said. This is a quote from Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? There's lots of ways to illustrate what God's trying to get you to feel so that you will enjoy this core value. I'll just try to pick one. You, you, you go to the mailbox, you, you, you look at these things that come in the mail, and there's this return service requested, please open immediately, and you open it up, and it is an unsuspected bill. You page through a little further, and it's your water bill. Now, the reason that this is part of my example is my wife, Mary, she was reading to me some ne- next-door posts about water bills in Georgetown, $700 last month, $600, and these neighbors are all going, yeah, I don't know, my bill wasn't that high the month before, I don't know what happened, they say I used this much, there's no way that I did, but they're freaking out over their bill like any of us would, right? And they're wondering what's coming with a bill like that, and the water bill was always the smaller of your utility bill, not anymore, right? And so you got that bill, and then you got this return service, you open return service, and it's like, Oh, you have tolls that you didn't pay, and now we're fining you, and your bill's now five times what it would have been for the regular toll. I'm not picking a dollar figure. And then you're thinking, well, (laughs) either anger or fear. Now, listen to the passage. God walks up to you in your your kitchen, Jesus, and puts his hand on your shoulder, and he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. One time, Tim Foskey gave me a phone call, and I was going through our bills and paying them, and he goes, how you doing, Pastor? And I said, not too good. I think I just spent all my available money on, on my bills. He goes, just be thankful you had something to spend it on. I mean, you had it so you could pay your bills. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You know what's better than having wealth? Having God. God calls wealth temporary and uncertain. What's better, that's what he says here, better than having wealth is having me. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You lost your job? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he says, and, so, and then this is, this, is the, this is ancient scripture, but it's appropriate for today. He says, and so we say with confidence, what? What can mere mortals do to me? Women, I know uh, you feel stress over finances sometimes, but not near as much as you men do. And there's a whole lot of men that get stressed out, and truth be told, it's a contribution to some of them having their heart attacks because they worry about their family and they worry about their finances and they stress over it. It's not all a gender thing, though. 
You want to make God happy? Stop making life about money. Stop getting so angry with people that maybe get the best of you a little bit or a big bit. Forgive and let go and let God. He, can, he sees it all. He owns it all. He can watch them jip you out of five grand and have plans to give back 15 just a little bit later. He wants you to trust him. Stop living functionally an atheist about your money. Stop making life and happiness about money. You brought nothing into this world. You're going to take nothing out. Your soul is the most valuable thing, and it's been redeemed, and God is with you. He's writing our stories. Whether it's mega economics or your microeconomics, poor values. Stop making life about money. Okay, let's review them. You see them in this folder? They're not on the screen, so maybe grab the folder. I want you to say them with me, okay? Number one, make God happy. Love believers like family. Make God happy, number two, be nice to strangers. Number three, be there for the suffering. Number four, champion marriage. Number five, don't make it about money. Last two things, don't forget grace. The law is a mirror. You're going to fail. You're already forgiven. Don't, when, you, when you don't go about life and these core values are guides and you don't really get it perfectly, just run to Jesus. It's already paid for. And then the second great thing, remember why you do stuff is more important than what you do. You don't do it to earn his favor. You've already got that. You do it because you love him. That's all. When you keep your head straight about the why and the what, and you listen to God's word and let it be your guide, guess what? That's what it means to live a, an internal life that is satisfying and fulfilling because you are happier and you're making God happier at the same time, which will give you a thrill. Watching my little grandchildren with their dads, it's kind of a bummer because... Uh, with my boys, you know, I was their dad and got to uh, make, they got to make me proud and that would please them, but, but it's kind of beautiful too. So when I show up, I'm just the old pawpaw, right? They love me, but when dad shows up, ooh, if he praises them, if he, he, he encourages them, their heart soars. You know, when you, when God sees you listening to his core values and wanting to keep them and trying to keep them and he's already covered your failures by grace his heart soars and I know you you're Christians you know he's your father when his heart soars then yours flies high too amen